Welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. As a digital extension of the Ackerman Center, our goal is to teach the past so we can change the future. In doing so, we address issues related to the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights studies from diverse perspectives. As Russia continues its war of aggression against Ukraine, we are all looking for ways to make sense of the news. In this episode, Dr. Niels Romer and Dr. Emily Rose Baker have a conversation with Dr. Yulia Kamska, a native Ukrainian and cultural historian who currently teaches at Dartmouth. Yulia, welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. It's really great to have you here with us. Could you introduce yourself for us, for our um, listeners, and also perhaps a little bit about your personal connection to Ukraine and, and what's happening there at the moment? Hi, um, and thank you so much for having me. I'm Yulia Kamska. I'm an associate professor of German studies at Dartmouth College. I am actually not a historian of Ukraine. I'm a cultural historian of Germany, specifically in the Cold War, but lately more broadly. And I'm right now working on a biography of Margaret and H.A. Ray, who created Curious George and many other characters and were refugees. So I'm thinking about refugees a lot, but I wasn't, I was not ever thinking that I was going to have a personal connection to a country from which refugees are currently fleeing. So my personal connection to Ukraine is that I'm from there. I grew up there uh, and lived there and studied there until age 19. I grew up in Lviv, which is in the west of Ukraine in the area known as Galicia. And my family is part Russian, part Jewish. The Russian part uh, is from central Russia and the Jewish part is originally from Kyiv. Um, and my grandfather ended up coincidentally, perhaps, taking a leading role in the rebuilding of the Jewish community in Lviv and was editor-in-chief of Lviv's Jewish paper, um, the name is Shofar, until 2010 when he passed away. And I do currently have relatives in Ukraine. I have relatives in Kiev that I've not been able to get in touch with, and I have an uncle in Volinia, in Rivna, who is still there and not planning on leaving anytime soon. And I have many classmates and friends who are still there in the West. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for that, Yulia. And and that sounds really difficult to have familial connections and and peers and colleagues and friends in Ukraine at the moment, especially those that you can't get in contact with. And what a time to be working on a project about refugees, but very timely at the moment in ways that we might not have all imagined in, in relation to Ukraine. So you've just said that you grew up in Ukraine. You mentioned that your grandfather was actually editor-in-chief of Lviv's Jewish newspaper. And and first of all, I just wanted to ask, how has your Jewish-Ukrainian upbringing shaped your perspectives of what's happening right now in Ukraine? In essence, there wasn't much about my upbringing, bringing at least initially that was specifically Jewish. We were very secular, what in the United States and in Germany and in other places would perhaps be described as cultural Jewishness more than religious Jewishness. I think the way in which my Jewish upbringing uh, shapes me the most is that uh, being to be Jewish was to be cosmopolitan in the most current definition as it was practiced in my family at least and in the circles that we know and so to be Jewish and to be Ukrainian or to be from Ukraine was to see and hope for a multicultural inclusive Ukraine and this is how I've been looking at the currently 
uh, unfolding Ukrainian resistance to the war of Russian aggression. And this is how I've been supporting it, because I see everybody mobilizing for a democratic Ukraine that is pluralist and not nationalist as um, Putin's Russia is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for that, Yulia. It's interesting that you mentioned the resistance and cosmopolitanism, because I was reading something that you shared on Twitter a couple of days ago. I think it was, uh, I believe it was something from David Fishman. And you were talking about how Jewish and Ukrainian histories are currently focused on uh, histories of of catastrophe, I think is how you worded it, or, or similar. And that we need to focus not exclusively on those kinds of histories. Could you maybe say a little bit about that and why you think that that's an important perspective? Yes, absolutely. So David Fishman's remark about not centering Jewish catastrophe, but also including histories of Jewish creativity and Jewish life in Ukraine, but also more broadly in um, other places outside the countries that we usually associate with vibrant Jewish life, such as the US or uh, Argentina or uh, Israel, for instance. I have to say that I find it very important, but also very obvious because I grew up in a Jewish family in Ukraine. My grandfather was a journalist by training and dabbled in poetry, so you could describe him as creative. My grandfather, my father, sorry, was part of a circle of artists, many of whom were Jewish, working in various mediums. So for me to, you know, Jewish life and Jewish creativity were just a fact of life. It's, it wasn't anything that, that resurrected for us. If anything, it was the other way around growing up. We actually had to discover the account, the accurate account of the Jewish catastrophe, because in the Soviet Union it wasn't discussed freely. The standard narrative, as many of your listeners will be familiar with, uh, was that uh, many Soviet citizens died in World War Two or in, in the Great Patriotic War, and the word Holocaust wasn't mentioned very often. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the declaration of independent Ukraine, we, or even before that, in the years before that, when the Yanovska concentration camp was being excavated physically just outside of Lviv, we were learning about those other histories and about the histories of extermination. And so I think that for me, I have a a slightly different perspective on it. And I tend to think of Jews as first and foremost alive. I mean, in many ways, this whole idea that Jewish history is characterized actually by creativity and and accomplishment by culture rather than by its persecution significantly predates actually the Holocaust. It goes back to a famous essay by Salah Baron from the 1920s, uh, Ghetto Emancipation, where he proudly you know, went again what he called the lacrimose view of the past, the tear-provoking past of, of Jewish suffering. But in many ways, that way of thinking about the Jewish past had then again been rewritten, or one might think, by the Holocaust itself, right? That became the, the quintessential way of once again centering, so to speak, Jewish history and the experience of suffering. But I think now when it comes to this current conflict, there are these histories of suffering Russian, Ukrainian, and Jewish, you know, respectively, that are invoked in different ways. In what ways does the past now surface, really, um, in this kind of clash of these um, two countries and with this unprovoked Russian attack on the on the Ukraine? I mean, both sides are invoking very clearly the Second World War, and both parts are invoking either the Nazis or the Holocaust very distinctly. What do you think about the use of of history? lacrimose or otherwise 
suffering um, that is, is kind of called upon here by the, by the protagonists. I'm thinking first and foremost now when I'm thinking about instrumentalizing history of Putin's pretexts for invading Ukraine, which were ostensibly steeped in a pseudo-historical narrative and perhaps trying to root himself in a really historical narrative. So right before on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine or as Russian forces were already invading Ukraine, he made these pronouncements about needing to enter Ukraine and denazify it and all that. I think enough has been said and written about it that I don't need to rehash it here. And this has a prehistory of its own. A historian of Nuremberg trials, Francine Hirsch, has written brilliantly about it very recently. She has basically created uh, a genealogy of Putin's obsessions with denazifying Ukraine and uncovered a sequence of multiple efforts within Russia to anchor denazification and resistance to Nazism as a kind of a national ideology or perhaps a political religion, if you will. There have been multiple laws passed in Russia over the last 10 years or so that criminalized um, glorifications of Nazism and similar things. And in a lot of that, Russia has invoked the Nuremberg trials as an authority giving kind of juridical place. And that is because in the Nuremberg trials, the foremost responsibility for the crimes of uh, Nazism and the crimes of the Holocaust were shifted to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union and its responsibility for perhaps appeasing Hitler or partitioning Europe with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was not really mentioned. So that gave Putin an excuse to create this blank slate for Russia's writing of its own history and writing of its involvement in World War One. So Russia has weaponized this past and uh, kind of positioned itself as a great defender of the world from fascism and also specifically in this case defender of all Russian speakers against a specter of Nazism that doesn't exist. Now one of the reasons that it's been obsessed with Nazism or denazifying Ukraine go also goes back to 2013 and 2014 uh, when far-right paramilitaries did form in Ukraine to basically fight pro-Russian separatists. Uh, there is um, the most famous of these is uh, the paramilitary Azov Battalion that has been instrumental in defending Mariupol since then and has been fighting against. So it's a far-right Ukrainian paramilitary unit that has been fighting against a lot of Russian paramilitary units that are also far-right and are fighting in an opposing camp on the on the side of the separatists in Russia. And so I think for Russia, it has become a kind of a bogeyman. It is a battalion that really exists, and it is a, a force, a paramilitary force that really exists, but it has come to stand somehow metonymically for all of Ukraine. Very interesting. Travel with us to the other side of this. How is the past relevant or used by the Ukrainian president, Zelensky? When Zelensky references history, it seems that he's trying to conjure up a really lived experience to which people could relate to so that they could reconstruct what people in Ukraine are going through, which is also a kind of instrumentalization, one could say, but it is a defensive instrumentalization, which is kind of the opposite of the aggressive instrumentalization, which is how I would describe what Putin is doing with history. Everyone very quickly latched on to the 
uh, near hit of the Baba Yah Holocaust Memorial Center. Is that coincidental in your mind, or is that you know meaningful, or what else do we have to take from from that? I I don't know enough about you know why it hit where it hit. But it is bitterly ironic to me that the monument at Babin Yar is very a very ambivalent monument. It's a site that's been under construction. It's been very much contested. It's been in part supported by Russian money. And it was a fairly modest monument on the site of the memorial. Uh, and it's become, in the last few years, this kind of a a site of a multimedia, quote-unquote, immersive and interactive initiative that's been very controversial, in part because it's been spearheaded by Ilyak Zhanovsky, who has been the master of creating these very polemical, full immersion experiences in history, as if one could fully ever fully be immersed in a history. But I think the bigger question is the Russian money that's behind it. It's been an international initiative. It's not really a Ukrainian initiative. So it's a very strange memorial to hit because it's sort of, you know, to hit a place like this where the practice of the memory there, the commemoration itself is contested, although nobody contests that the massacre did happen. It's a strange place to hit because it's a little bit like all the other Russian hits on Ukraine, like the hits, for example, on museums of foreign art in Kharkiv, where a lot of Russian paintings are located, or like the hits of Russia on many cities in eastern Ukraine where people are, speak Russian and a lot of Russian speakers live. So Putin is destroying that which he claims to save, but he is the greatest source of danger there. Thanks so much for that um, response and for highlighting some of the complexities as well of, of Babiar as a memorial site. I actually just wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier about this instrumentalization of history. And, and we were talking not only about Putin, but um, Zelensky there. And I just wanted to firstly to, to highlight that although we can say that perhaps Zelensky has been instrumentalizing some aspects of history, whether or not that's that's for a kind of for the purposes of defence. He is himself of Jewish heritage and has family members that he lost the Holocaust. So this is obviously a different, slightly more nuanced, perhaps, use of history for him personally. But I just wanted to ask explicitly, what is, what is the danger of instrumentalising anti-Semitism and the memory of genocide explicitly? Because I think that's, that's something that our listeners will be interested in and, and, and perhaps is something that we can take heed of today where there's still intensifying anti-Semitism around the world. All instrumentalizations potentially erase the original significance of the event. So while we must always compare a lot of the specificity of the event, and I think a lot of the histories in the families of the victims are getting eliminated. I've been thinking uh, with all these instrumentalizations that have been going on through COVID of, you know, covid um, denialists wearing the yellow star and kind of adopting the Holocaust symbolism and all the ways that seem 
blatantly wrong, I was thinking of how bad it has gone because there is this uh, landmark book by two sociologists, uh, I believe they're sociologists that has been very celebrated. It's called Cosmopolitan Memory. Um, the sociologists are Nathan Schneider and Danny Levy and it appeared around 1999, I think, or around the turn of the century of this century. And it was, and it heralded the Holocaust as the kind of the new ethical standard that we can all get behind and we can all adopt. And it, it can all be meaningful to us as an original event, but it will also kind of create a scale for our ethical actions. And that was such a hopeful beginning, like a lot of hopeful beginnings at the at the start of a century, at least. It was a very hopeless beginning. And that same impulse that could have gone in a very hopeful direction has gone very, very bad and very, very sour. Uh, and most instrumentalizations that we've seen have been the opposite of the cosmopolitan memory. They've been very deeply particularist uh, and they've been very abusive. Uh, and so I think that, you know, this what we are seeing now in terms of what Putin is doing, while also obscuring the nationalist forces and the anti-Semitic forces within Russia itself, I think it runs the same danger of fueling and fanning more of these abuses. You spoke earlier about the importance of not only focusing on histories of Jewish catastrophe, but in the light of these kinds of um, abuses of history and, and of Jewish history, how do we reconcile that as scholars, as historians, you know, as, as members of the public? How do we continue to challenge this kind of weaponization while also maintaining a handle on the more kind of positive, animating aspects of Jewish life and, and culture? I, I think it's a question that's very difficult to think about at this moment, because what we're looking at in the midst of all this uh, bombing and the war of Russia on Ukraine is a massive exodus of Jews from Ukraine. So the community that has shrunken, and I will just speak to that one aspect right now, because I think it's very salient to your point. So the community that has shrunken massively, manifold, um, of, by many, many thousand, um, maybe hundreds of thousands of people since 1990 um, has stabilized. And the Jews that were in Ukraine um, they were in part Ukrainian Jews who have always lived there and their families have always lived there. Some of them were immigrant Jews who, um, because they were creatives or because they wanted to help revive Ukrainian life there, they immigrated there. But it was a fairly stable and vibrant Jewish community of all the people who have identified with this more multicultural Ukraine that established itself in 2014 and when a lot of Ukrainians uh, who started speaking of, them, of themselves as Ukrainians no longer identified as ethnic Ukrainians, but there was a kind of a constitutional patriotism born out of the Maidan protests. What's happening now is that people are leaving en masse and Israel has offered to take in very many Ukrainians with Jewish relatives there and it will take many more. It w it's easing its immigration regulations to take uh, Ukrainians um, who are Jewish or self-identify as Jewish, and by some estimates, about 
30,000 people might leave. I mean, they haven't left yet. Now we're just talking under 5,000 Jews who are fleeing Ukraine. And for now, they're refugees in many different places, not necessarily in Israel. This is a destruction of a Jewish community in Ukraine, and it is directly related to Putin's attack. It just strikes me we, we kind of keep looping back into the 20th century in terms of looking at, at this. And, you know, one other way maybe of thinking about all of that is to think about it from the perspective of rewriting the past, that in many ways the unprovoked attack is not just simply about conquering something, the Ukraine, or destroying um, its, its society and its culture, but really rewriting the past. The two markers that for me historically then become significant is on the one side, the tail end of the First World War, the kind of disintegration of the three empires, one of them being the Russian, and seeing Putin now in lots of ways trying to restore that and thereby to erase really other histories, in particular the Ukrainian. And then the other marker that always close to, to my heart, the kind of 1990s fall of the Berlin Wall, but then... Leonard Cohen famously going to Berlin and recording the song The Future and said, I've seen the future, it's murder. And that's in a way what we're seeing right now, that contrary to this optimism that the Cold War would usher in this kind of new period where countries could evolve into these other futures that Julia talked so nicely about at the beginning, these futures for Ukraine as a kind of diverse and democratic one that we are now really locked into and almost an attempt to rewrite history by erasing all of those possible futures and possibly to return us again to something that's closer to a pre-First World War, you know, European map of sorts. This is my question. Do we see, therefore, this war as being really also a war about the past and of an attempt really to erase a history, the history of, of this complicated and very diverse nation of the Ukrainians? I think that's an excellent point, and I, I second a lot of the points you're making. I don't know, I feel a little bit ambivalent about the term rewriting history, because in a way, all historians rewrite history, right? You can do that in good faith or in bad faith. You can manipulate historical records or not. But I think we're talking about a destruction of heritage, a destruction of archives, the destruction, not just of historical memory, but of the sources, uh, which is why Quinn Dombrovsky and uh, other digital historians have mobilized to help save and preserve Ukrainian records, papers that are digitized, that are stored on Ukrainian websites and create a kind of a copy, a digital copy of that. And I think that the other Part of that backsliding is the severe question, and right now that's also unsure where, which way that would go, is the access to Russian archives, right, uh, which has been free in some ways, depending on which century you worked on, and will be probably extremely unfree, you know, for researchers from non-friendly countries in the future. So I think that there is a very physical threat to not having the records that haven't been digitized or digitized and won't be rescued, although I'm quite optimistic about the rescue potential of what's been digitized, but just, you know, the physical damage to history and also the clampdown on accessibility on Russia's behalf. And of course, it holds many records that pertain to the history of Ukraine and that are stored in Russia. So I think that that will definitely influence what we can reconstruct and what we can write and what we can rewrite and respond to Russian manipulation of history. 
Thank you. You're making a really interesting point that when it comes to this potential threat to the Ukrainian past, that there's a threat to the kind of physicality of buildings, of heritages and memorials and archives and so on and so forth. But then there's also the other threat um, to the kind of digital life of, of that culture. And, and I find this really fascinating right now to follow. And I think that's what you were referencing, the initiative of saving Ukrainian cultural heritage online. Um, it's really a collaborative crowdsource attempt to record everything there is right now to be found still on the internet in terms of that heritage to ensure that it's still there. Because in the end, even all this the digital stuff that surrounds us is still stored and linked to actual things, right? It doesn't just hover in space. And so I think this more than ever, I think, brings up this new dimension also of these potential conflicts that are both about the physical heritage as well as now about the digital record that may or may not exist any longer. And so I've been following this initiative. Um, if any of our listeners want to go there, it's called Saving Ukrainian Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online, where everyone is called upon to help as much as they can to really preserve that record. So very interesting how now in our digital age, heritage has both a digital component and a, and a physical um, one as well. And therefore, this quote-unquote erasure takes on a different form, but also puts us all in into interesting positions as we're consuming this digital world of sorts. Absolutely. Or can participate in the rescue, I think, in a way that, you know, monuments men of yore could not have done, you know, unless they were physically there, equipped, sent and authorized. Uh, most of us could not have protected cultural heritage of our desks. No, very true. I was also very much impressed by, by how it came together and how it's really this kind of crowdsourced attempt to record, which is quite an endeavor. So puts a new emphasis maybe on what otherwise our tools or us individually are capable of doing or not if we are feeling overwhelmed and put into these positions of us watching it unfold, so to speak, on, on our computers and devices and on our TV screens. So that's an, an interesting reference. Yulia, um, I'm interested in your personal relationship to this kind of cultural erasure, which, you know, we've said is something that can be recuperated digitally. But I found your description of in your L.A. Review of Books piece about this nightmare you have of your father's stained glass, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is in Galicia, of an explosion shattering the glass and, and what that might mean in terms of the loss of that that culture and, and what that might mean on a personal level. And I just wondered if you'd like to, if if you could speak to your personal reflections and your personal feelings about the potential loss of, of such a, a family kind of cultural history as well. My father was part of a, um, you couldn't say a community, but of a group of artists who were mostly self-taught and non-academically trained who started uh, making and restoring stained glass in Ukraine in the 1980s. It was something that started academically as a, as a subject that was taught at institute, art institutes and universities. There weren't many. Um, Ukraine, uh, Soviet Ukraine specifically, didn't have a ton of institutes and universities and not very many specialized, those specialized in art, although there were very many vocational schools that trained artists and they were excellent. But stained glass was not something that was emphasized in Ukraine. It was a very strong point of emphasis in the Baltics. Uh, and I suppose, I don't know the full history. I've always been interested in exploring it further. But I think that that might have been because of 
the traditional, although these connections also existed in the west of Ukraine, connections to German stained glass makers and these international companies. And I think there were very many international companies that made glass all across Europe and also made lead all across Europe and uh, passed down the know-how. So my father and his friends, they were untrained. They, my father is a construction engineer by trade. So he knows something about construction, which is very important, and about architectural structures, which is important when you're thinking about stained glass. And his friends had similar training. And so they taught themselves by sort of retro-engineering stained glass techniques, uh, how to make glass. And they experimented with glassmaking techniques. They bribed many officials to get glass and also to get lead in conditions of scarcity. This wasn't always easy. That was not necessarily always sourced within Ukraine. They sourced most of their glass from what is now Belarus, for example. So they set up this small network of stained glass makers and restorers in Lviv. And they started out just restoring cathedral windows because it was the time of when there was more money being pumped into restoration more generally, and also because so many cathedrals were looking run down. And so there was a, an acute need of restoring. But they have also started making their own art stained glass and executing their own designs. And my father made stained glass both in Lviv and in Kiev and also outside Lviv uh, for various commissions, as did his friends. And so I kept thinking, um, you know, in terms of what will survive and what will be destroyed, not looking at kind of history writ large or historical record, but looking at the material traces or the traces that each one of us leaves in in space as we live and it occurred to me that should there be a massive or considerable strike russian strike on leave the that stained glass would probably be destroyed and so i started having nightmares about it and they've ended up being recurrent by this point because i think this is you know while i do have relatives there and that is my primary concern my primary concern not to get confused here is with the people and their well-being but i think the people live for a reason you know they want to they don't just want to you know, live, eat, sleep, and evaporate. They want to leave something behind. And I think so much that's been impressive and beautiful about Ukraine is an incredibly vibrant art scene. And it's really blossomed uh, since 2014. There have been so many artists uh, working in all sorts of media, exhibiting all over Europe. And so to lose that, which is not you know, visibly cultural heritage or not coded as cultural heritage according to international norms, uh, to lose that is a pain of its own. Shifting you a little bit gears, one thing that strikes me when I look at you worked quite a bit on radio, um, in particular on the uh, Radio Free Europe um, from the 50s into the 60s. And so one of the things that I find really striking is these various video addresses that Zelensky is giving. And so I think he very deliberately uses video as a way of delivering some of his messages uh, I guess because there's is still a sense of immediacy or authenticity attached to it or something like that. Would you comment on that? You know, I think what I'm trying to get at what once was the radio, is it now video addresses? Is there um, kind of a techno technological shift of sorts that is significant? 
That's a great question. I think it's very complicated because there's still the radio and the Cold War radio that uh, existed at the time. If we're looking at a station like Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty, which are now yoked together, uh, they are still around and they have online content now and they also have a TV station. So, you know, if anything, there's more of that. That didn't go anywhere. It just got blocked by Putin. And now you need a VPN or special browsers to access content. Content, And you can within Russia if it's it's the question of will and desire and uh, willingness to take on risk in part, especially if you're doing this in a handheld device and might be stopped. Um, but in terms of, you know, whether memes and these video addresses have supplanted something, I think that they're very shareable and they're very short and they're very compact. And Zelensky's particular ones are always very rooted in place. So if you look at them, he's never just speaking about himself, that he's there or that he's with particular people. Um, members of his cabinet, for example, but he would stand outside next to recognizable landmarks and the landmarks would be visible. Now you could probably fake this, you know, but this would have been pointed out very, very soon by forensic experts if this were the case, because you can usually tell that and usually you can tell that with a naked eye. So I think the success is this kind of emplacement of wording, which I think is quite different from old radio because, you know, it's not possible. I mean, it's possible to relay a sense of place and radio with special effects and all of that. But, you know, those are ambivalent and not so singularly identified with place as his videos are. I think he's a very savvy media persona. I mean, this is the paradox of Zelensky, who most many Ukrainians were very, I mean, not when he was being elected, he had incredibly high support when he was being elected. But after his election, a lot of Ukrainians uh, grew very skeptical about him and very few of them ever imagined that he would be such an outstanding leader of a country at war. But all his experience with being a very skilled performer and uh, in front of cameras and having the right words at the right time and having the right cadence to say them with, which is also very important. I think he definitely is putting that to the best of uses. <laughs> I think it's all kind of become a, that one man show that used to be on Netflix and is now back on Netflix from what I understand. You know, that is now also politics, but also has is rooted in reality completely. Thank you for that. That was really, really interesting. But it strikes me also that, I mean, he has is trying, obviously, not just to appeal to, to the Western Europe or the US, but he is also repeatedly appealing to Russians themselves. And therefore, he also makes good use of, of, of different languages. But I think he also has to pierce through 15 years of propaganda. And that's, I think, the, the other big tall order here that in many ways, and you kept referencing even like the conflict with the Ukrainian um, already back to 240, but Putin obviously has been in place for quite some time now, and Russians have been exposed uh, to this type of, of propaganda for a long, long time. So in many ways, maybe bringing it back to something identifiable that also Russians can often identify as very specific places is a different way of, of also reaching to that audience at times. Absolutely. I think you're completely right. And I think it's also, I think he's trying, I mean, it's very savvy. It's, I think it's propaganda that leans into PR more than into propaganda. Um, and it leans into language use as a medium that is also the message <laughs> in this particular case, right? As opposed to Russians who have official Russian media and official Russian media 
controlling agencies that have been kind of trying to stamp out presence of Ukraine in Russia or of Ukrainian in Russia. I'm thinking in particular of one show on the TV channel Dorst, which has been shuttered. Uh, since then, it was addressing specifically Ukrainian language and culture, and a part of it was in Ukrainian, and that was being kind of extinguished off the air, and then the entire station was taken off the air, and the station has already been going through a whole lot of trouble and has been harassed for many, many years and had to operate as a foreign agent, quote-unquote. The part about it that I find so absolutely baffling is the very word war is not allowed to be used right now in Russia, right? You cannot use the word war in reference to this war. You have to always reference a special operation or call it something else. If you reference it as war, you're already possibly in trouble. So that's how severe actually, you know, there's a lot of talk about, in particular in the West, we like to see the Russians demonstrating and we like there to be this this uprising or this discontent with Putin. But if you think about that, the simple word war is not allowed to be used, then you get a sense of how almost impossible that it must be right now in Russia to actually voice any kind of other perspectives on, on this. I mean, it's even worse than that. It's not only that saying the word war in reference to this war is very difficult or impossible in many contexts. It's also that standing there with a blank piece of paper <laughs> is impossible. So something that doesn't even have any verbal matter on it is just as viewed as antagonistic as blatant propaganda. So the signaling by absence is considered to be antagonistic to the regime. What Putin has wrought in the years of his presidency, some of his more acceptable years, early years, and the completely unacceptable later years, that's problematic, but also uh, the entire imperial grandeur that he's tried to reconstruct, that was already kind of a phantom for very many people, or, you know, kind of the imperial offense or being having been slighted. I think working against that is very difficult, and I don't know that Zelensky's kind of kinder take on propaganda SPR that's also done through Russian and through appeals to kindness, through appeals to humanity. I don't know how far that can go because if only 5.5% of Russians uh, use VPNs, and this is the number that I heard on Radio Liberty this morning, that's a pretty depressive figure because this shows you how many of them would be able to hear these addresses and you know to get through is very complicated now i try to listen to some radio stations out of russia that wouldn't uh, leave me completely traumatized let's put it this way <laughs> and so i sometimes listen to a radio station for financiers and people in banking or people with an interest in economics commerçant it's a station that's also yoked to a newspaper by the same name and it is possible to know what is going on they, there's the kind of the resurrection of the sopian languages that existed in the cold war so people are speaking of the violence in ukraine and if you're slightly clued in you could reconstruct the rest and you could definitely get a sense of how horrible things are looking within Russia. So, I mean, I have relatives in Russia and they are complete and utter Putinists or they are completely indifferent and there is absolutely nothing that I or probably you or anyone <laughs> could do to convince unless it's maybe Putin which I very much doubt that that would ever happen, to convince them otherwise. I actually, uh, for having been a failed propaganda historian, I actually called my mother, who's from Russia, and asked her to place a call to her uh, relatives in Russia and try to tell them the real truth. 
and she gave up in the first minute because their propaganda came in bigger sound bites and it was a lot more cogent than her kind of humanitarianism. <laughs> and I think they uh, right away knew what to say and how to phrase it and how to put it. And she ended up actually having to hang up on them within three minutes of the conversation and hasn't called them since. So I think that, you know, how do you break through, which is this bizarre question of Cold War propaganda under which a lot of Western broadcasts were beamed into the Soviet Union is back again, but nobody knows how to do it now because while we have many more mediums, and many more ways of accessing people, uh, I think that there has to be a desire, a receptiveness on the other side, right? And that is the big question always, can, can you capture that audience? And that's the big incalculable right now. Really interesting, but there is then also something, you know, that almost, you know, maybe nostalgia otherwise makes you think about radio as being a far simpler means of transmitting something and also in lots of ways, ultimately harder to control. Um, and so far as you can't trace it so easily in terms of who uses it or not. And, and so it reminds you then of, of the ways in which uh, radio has had its numerous, you know, interesting moments in the past, whether it was the Second World War, famously the BBC, or then in the Cold War. There's a different kind of impossibility, like you described this now, to really pierce through this. And, and it has been become more difficult because of our, our, the advancements in our technology. Yeah, and I think now, to your point about radio, there are new radio broadcasters that are, I mean, it's always, a, it's been a question of whether to launch a new and more powerful radio propaganda since forever, um, not forever, but since in the last um, 10 or 15 years, it's really never left the table. And now there are new stations being launched, and some of them have been launched already. Um, out of various by various Western countries broadcasting into Russia, this kind of benign propaganda, I would say, mostly centered on news. I think, as you say, it's a landscape that's completely saturated. And so that's made it all the harder to figure out what it is that you want to trust and what it isn't that you want to trust, because there is such a plethora of choices, even for people in Russia who live with these very stringent and in times blanketing, blanketing seeming restrictions on what they can hear or not. So if you, even if you log on with the VPN, you know, that you're given by someone who you know and you've never done it before, for instance, you're not a dissident by nature, the question is, you know, could you even figure out what to latch onto first? I just wanted to return to this idea of place and invert the importance of place or emplacement for Zelensky's own media addresses and think on the flip side about placelessness and refugeedom, particularly relating to your own work, Yulia. What are some of the challenges facing refugees or, or those wanting to leave Ukraine at the moment? I think the biggest challenge is that they don't want to leave. They don't want to leave for very many reasons. Some of these reasons are material, for instance, um, very many arguments that I've heard from friends and from my immediate family is that, well, we have this apartment, how could we leave it? Because the minute we leave it, it's gone. <laughs> and so it's a, a crappy apartment that they, but they've worked for it all their life. And, you know, abandoning something that's been hard earned, is very difficult. And of course, also fleeing with very few possessions and packing a bag and just running off is really difficult. But the biggest, the biggest consideration is that they want to rebuild Ukraine now. They want the war to end now and they want the country to do well. One of our Ukrainian students, Zhenya Dubrova, has recently told me that if she could study what she's studying here at Dartmouth in Ukraine, she would have never left. And she described her generation 
uh, so the the Gen Z as in Ukraine as first and foremost Ukrainian, which is quite different from my generation, which was sort of exploring different options and getting frustrated easily and then leaving. But then how many times can you really flee or how far can you really run away? And so for them, the biggest dilemma right now is that nobody really wants to leave and people wait until the last minute to do so until almost until it's very late. And some of them end up stranded there. You know, we have several students here on campus. Um, so these are not really remote issues for me right now. These are not the issues that I think about with my with regard to my work at all. Actually, there are issues that I think about with regard to my everyday life, because I'm trying to help these Ukrainian students to feel less pain and maybe to help evacuate their relatives to safer places and sometimes to minimize the pain that they feel about the relatives who cannot evacuate anymore because they're surrounded by Russians and because one of them is male and so could be drafted if caught um, to fight against Ukrainians on the Russian side. So these are very difficult dilemmas. And I think, But I think the fundamental issue is that people don't want to flee. They want to stay in their country and they want to rebuild it as soon as possible. And neither of those conditions are present. Thanks so much for that, Yulia, and, and it's great that you've been so vocal about what institutions and um, professors, etc., can do to help students and those who are living through these difficult experiences at the moment. This idea of refugees, of whether or not to leave, also I think links to a question that I'm personally interested in, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, about the international framing of what's happening in Ukraine. The idea that this is a particularly surprising war because it's taking place in a quote-unquote civilized nation. I wonder what you make of this kind of framing. I mean, what can one make of it? It's terrible and it's hurt Ukraine. It's hurt everybody who's in Ukraine. It's hurt everybody who's doubly or triply displaced in Ukraine. There are people from Afghanistan who ended up settling in Ukraine. Ukraine ended up being what Russia wants it to be, de facto, a buffer zone for hosting many refugee populations that weren't let in into the West. Uh, so there are quite a few people who are already displaced from Syria and Afghanistan and other places living, Chechens for that matter as well, who couldn't live with the Kadyrov regime in Chechnya, in, within present day Russia. It's a, an environment that is full of people who have been um, displaced multiple times. So I have very little patience, to be honest, for people who are throwing the word civilized around with no regard for how it will be turned against all the people who are suffering from the situation and also how it would undermine and undercut the stature of all refugees from Ukraine in the world. So there's this kind of international framing, but then we kept going back to 2014. This is not something that is, is only 20 or 21 days old, but in lots of ways has a, has a significant prehistory. But I think what's really hard to understand is how to the last moment, it seemed, you know, Germany being one of the countries that believed that a continuous engagement, a continuous outreach, and a huge dependency also on, on Russia's economy was the way to go. I mean, one of the things that, you know, really has left now, I think some of the European countries, a little dumbfounded, in particular the Germans, is how they, they had why would they have continued to make themselves so dependent on Russian gas in particular that now in this moment when they are trying to be really harsh and throw all the sanctions, it's almost impossible to them. So there's something I think about our international politics 
that really comes to the fore here where, where you think like what kind of possible futures are we actually envisioning collectively and what kind of false assumption do we actually put into them? And I think that's the other thing that has come to the fore here in my mind that the quote unquote what you call the international framing is I think a conglomeration of sorts with some envisioned or anticipated futures that were based on such wrong assumptions that it almost seems impossible now how they could have continued along those lines. And so that's what I find really puzzling right now to realize what kind of futures do we need to envision collectively so that you know we don't become so supportive of, of a government that has been steadily moving away from the ideals that we're embodying, that has been already attacking unprovoked its neighbors since 2014. But we were still shaking hands for the last seven or eight years happily. You know, what, what gets me in, in all of this is is we talked a great deal about the past. The the other part, you know, that I think is also interesting are these various, you know, wrong or horrible or wonderful anticipated futures that come to the fore and become visible in this conflict. Our own futures, as far as the U.S. is concerned, futures envisioned by, by Western Europe, um, but then also the Russian and then the Ukrainians. And, and so I think that's the interesting bit to all of this. There are the ecological futures that need to be imagined and there need to be the futures of peace that need to be imagined. I'm thinking about Germany imagining a greener future starting year 2011, at least, when it decided to abandon nuclear, but also not created a robust infrastructure of phasing out nuclear energy and ended up with the stark reliance on gas, which also wasn't new. It has had historic reliance on Soviet gas since the 80s. These are particularist futures where every country wants to imagine its future as the best future very quickly uh, without much regard for other countries. You know, the futures that we're talking about, you know, the greener future and the more peaceful future are the futures that will need to be imagined together without sidelining or bulldozing, as in this case with Ukraine in particular, any one um, nation that is very easily marginalized, you know, that isn't a superpower. And I think that's a real dilemma. It will have to be done extremely carefully because everybody who's advocating giving Putin an off-ramp that sounds like a brilliant idea, except that he's not, he doesn't seem particularly interested in off-ramps. And all that these discussions of off-ramping end up resulting in saying things like, well, you know, let's just give him a little piece of Ukraine. But then, you know, when you're sitting next to a person from that part of Ukraine, it becomes loud and clear how saying these things is responsibility for the lives and futures of real people who are as entitled to futures as the rest of us. I don't think that that pertains only Ukraine. This is the conversation about futures in on war zones and all conflict zones where the people who are most affected end up being the least marginalized over many years and decades. And we're now looking at Afghanistan, which has suffered enough and keeps suffering. I think it does raise this really interesting question that the ecological future, what you call the green future, is in lots of ways, not from a, just ecological perspective, the, the right future. But in this case, it is also the peaceful future. And so I think that's the, the kind of interesting moment that the Germans had a chance in 2011 to invest more significantly in alternative energies, but they did not do that. Instead, they kept making themselves more and more dependent on Russian gas. And here we are. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it goes to the point that all of these, and you just said it, all of these decisions about everyday aspects of our lives are deeply political, not just in terms of domestic politics, but they have direct international political ramifications. And I think people... People in the U.S. especially tend to forget that just because they live on such a huge mass of land and because it's very easy to look inward and focus on domestic politics. But I think international politics is a very clear dimension there and that needs to be present. You know, it needs to be peace for everybody, not just, you know, kind of some kind of particularist peace in one place, but not in the others. And ideally a peace that's green and not so fossil fuel driven. Do you have any kind of lasting comments, anything that you wanted to say that you haven't already? I have something to say it's not very new and I've said it many times before is that I think all eyes are on Ukraine when it's burning and then when it's not burning not too many people seem to care about it and it also seems to be ridiculously underrepresented on U.S. campuses in terms of the history departments government departments especially where lines are not being cut you know history departments you could at least justify by the fact that very many different kinds of history positions have been slashed and you know i'm not even bringing up literature departments which have been slashed many many years ago but i think there could be this is the time to advocate for more presence of those who can teach about ukraine thank you yeah that's a really a really important point thank you yulia You've been a great source of public knowledge. And I wondered if you had any resources that you could share with us for our listeners, um, indeed for ourselves, that you think are particularly useful when thinking through the kinds of ideas we've been talking about today. What I think sometimes is hard to come by, or it's there, but it's not at one's fingertips, is something that can sustain oneself in the dark times, and I think we're heading for more of those. It's a very tried thing to say, but translators, poets, writers have been doing a great job with it all. So I highly recommend Ilya Kaminsky's feed, which most people already follow. He publishes newly translated Ukrainian poetry and writes Ukrainian poetry, a lay review of books, uh, thanks to Boris Draluk, who is has been uh, one of the founding editors way back when, has been a very stalwart supporter of Ukraine. So its archive has a lot of information written about Ukraine, a lot of translations of Ukrainian authors and a lot of critical essays about Ukraine from various perspectives. There is also a terrific new um, Twitter feed that a lot of people know about already, but maybe more people could know about that has been uh, coordinated by Noah Noah Snyder, who used to be a a journalist in Moscow, and it's called Warren Translation. And it's a crowdsourced translation project that is basically putting together various testimonies of Ukrainians about the war onto Twitter, almost in real time. So I think that translators, we've talked a little bit about cultural preservationists or digital humanities stepping in. So translators have done the same, um, trained translators and also untrained translators. And so Warren Translation is a great feed to follow if you want to hear voices from Ukraine directly, voices of people, some of whom are known and some of whom haven't spoken up before and wouldn't be known to us if they weren't there. So I think translators are another, have been another amazing force in this. So Warren Translation, it's a Twitter feed. And it's easy to find if you just type that into Twitter. Brilliant. Thanks so much for that. And, you know, what amazing and important work to have translated voices of those who are in Ukraine. Thank you for that, Yulia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the great questions. It it was great to meet you all. We enjoyed very much having you here. Thank you. Bye, Yulia. Good to meet you too. Thank you. Wonderful meeting you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
This podcast is hosted by a team of dedicated faculty and research assistants at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. You can learn more about our work and find upcoming events at our website, www.ackerman.utdallas.edu.